thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John in the New Testament. This great gospel has been our companion for months, if not years, and we're coming to a close of our study of this gospel. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 21 of the Gospel of John, verses 15 through 17. Some of you are familiar with the name John Grisham. Grisham, by training, is a lawyer, and by passion, he is a novelist. He's been published 51 times. 28 of his books have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list, and his first book, which he wrote, was called A Time to Kill. He made 30 attempts sending the manuscript to various publishers hoping that someone would see the value of the book and publish it. He approached 15 different agents asking if they would take on the responsibility of spreading the word about his book. He was a man who was practicing law in northern Mississippi. He had a Pinto station wagon, and in the back, where normally luggage would be carried, he kept boxes of the book. He self-published, and when he would go into a 7-Eleven or some grocery store elsewhere, he would go to the owner and say, could I leave some of these books on consignment with you, and would you be kind enough to sell them for me? He got some takers. Well, the rest is history, as I've mentioned very successful. His books have sold 300 million copies. Now, if he had caved in and not kept on, what would have happened? Well, our lives might not be, might not be in some way diminished for not reading John Grisham. But what we do know is he would not have had the impact he otherwise would have. For the older people here, and some of you who are movie buffs, who are younger, you know the movie Gone with the Wind. It is the greatest grossing, not grossing people out, but the greatest grossing movie in the history of cinema. Margaret Mitchell wrote the novel upon which it is based. She approached 38 different publishers being turned down by every one of the 38. She failed, in a sense, from her perspective at times, just like Grisham did, but she persisted. And the result is that many people have been entertained, not only by the movie, but by her writing, and I might say writings in the plural. Babe Ruth, somebody know the name Babe Ruth? Do you know how many times he struck out? 1,330 times. And 
he hit 714 home runs and his success stood for decades before Hank Aaron broke that record. He was asked one time after he struck out every time he was at bat by a pub a reporter, sports reporter said, what do you think, babe, when you strike out? He said, hitting home runs. That's what he was thinking about the next time up. And he was a man who failed a lot, 1,330 times. That was just strikeouts. That's not ground outs or fly outs or line outs or whatever. But what we see is there are a lot of people who have gone on not to be defined by their failures, but learning from their failures in life. The Bible is basically the story of how our God created man in his own image and how man has fallen from that place of purity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There has been great failure in the human race. And what we are sensing and seeing today is a result of the influence of sin in the world. We are failures. It amazes me how the society, and you can see the work of the enemy here, props people up and says, you're great, you're great, you're great, never looking at the flaws in them. Now you might say, well, you're not painting a very nice picture of God if that's what you think. But frankly, God's picture of himself includes, listen carefully, using only people who have failed. And you've got to own up to your failure. You've got to own up that you have not figured it out. And if you live to be as long as I am, apart from God, you will never figure it out. Because he created you for one purpose. You know what his purpose is in creating you and me? To glorify himself. All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. We fail to achieve the purpose for which God has created us. And the Bible is a story without exception, except for the person of Jesus Christ, of how God took failures and turned them into people who brought honor and glory to his life. I hope you're a person who is eager and hungry to make a difference in your life. Not in some grand way, not in some highly publicized way, but just to live a life that counts. Not just for time, but also for eternity. Our lives, the Bible says in more than one place, is like a mist. It's like a vapor. It's here today, and before we know it, it's gone. Isn't that true? The statistics on death, George Bernard Shaw, the great British playwright, said are quite impressive. One out of one dies. The only one who survived death, he himself died, was Jesus Christ. He was raised from the dead. Isn't it good to know that he who raised from the dead is also our Savior? And he died for you, whether you or I know it, he died for us. He paid the price of giving his life fully and was punished by God the Father for your sin and my sin when he died on the cross. But the good news is, he wants to turn our failure 
into something that will honor him in the long run. Today we're looking at a very familiar figure in the Bible. I would say probably in the top 10 most noticeable figures when I say his name and we read his name, immediately something comes to mind to most of us. His name is Peter. His original name given by his father was Simon. You may remember when Jesus first met him, he was introduced, that is Jesus was introduced to Peter by his brother, Andrew. Andrew had met Jesus the next day. He couldn't wait to get his brother back so he could meet Jesus because he, that is Andrew, and his buddies had every reason to believe that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was in fact the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of Israel from the oppression of the Roman world and all kinds of groups of people who oppressed Israel leading up to Christ's coming. And when Jesus saw him, this is what he said. He said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, and that translates into the name Peter. The word Simon means a little pebble. The word Peter means a rock. Now, if you know anything about the temperament and behavior of Peter, you know he was not very rock-like. He was unstable in most of his ways. He was very impetuous. Someone said the only time he ever opened his mouth was to change his feet. He was a guy who was always saying things without taking time to think about them. And he was also a man who inspired people because he was ready to take risks. He was that kind of person. And we know at the end of the time of Christ pouring his life in, primarily to 12 men. One of them betrayed him. We know who that was, Judas, right? And then after Judas was gone to do his dirty work, Jesus got the men around him, these 11, and he told them, look guys, what I want you to do is fulfill my commandments. And this is my commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then he went on to say on the heels of that, that Peter, you are going to deny me. I'm giving the short version of this, okay? And Peter was insulted. How dare you? He didn't use that terminology, but in effect, that's the attitude he copped out. He said, how dare you say that I will deny you? All these other guys, they may cut and run, but I'm not going to, Jesus. And Jesus said, without skipping a beat, he said, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times. Just a part of a day separated that discussion in the upper room that Jesus had with Peter and others. Well, you know the rest of the story. Jesus never predicts something that does not come true, does he? He knew and he saw what happened. How Peter did the exact opposite of what he said he would do. Do you think Peter meant it when he said, 
these other fellows, they're going to blow it. But not me, Jesus. I'm going to be steadfast in my devotion to you. Do you think he meant that? I have absolute certainty he meant that. But what he was doing, he was doing what you and I have done and what we do to our own peril. This is what he was doing. He was putting his confidence in Simon, the son of John. He was saying, I can do it. I'm a man of action. I'm not afraid of people. I believe I can do it and I'm going to show you, Jesus, and the rest of these scaredy cats what I can do. Famous last words. They really weren't his last words, but they felt like it to him, I'm sure. When the description of his reaction, when he had abandoned Jesus, remember? And then the next thing, as you read the story unfold, he's coming closer to Jesus. The scripture says he follows Jesus from a distance. And then, lo and behold, because of his friend John the Apostle who had contacts in the house of Caiaphas, he was allowed to come into the gate and the courtyard where Jesus was being tried in a kangaroo court. And three times when he was approached, he was said, aren't you one of that man's followers, speaking of Jesus? Each time he said, I don't know that man. Second time, I don't know that man. Third time, I don't know that man. And then the rooster crowed. And simultaneous with that, what we see is the eyes of Jesus, who was aware of everything, turn, he turned his head, he looked eye to eye to Peter. And what was Peter's response? The scripture says he wept bitterly. Why did he weep bitterly? He had failed miserably. He had made a declaration, in effect, a promise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result was total failure. Total failure. Have you ever failed the Lord? I've lived so long, I can't count the ways I failed Him. And let me just say this, and this is not unique to me, please. He doesn't remember one of those failures, provided I have said, Lord, I did fail you. I blew it, Jesus. How can you find it in your heart to forgive me? I've confessed my sin to the Lord. And he says, that's all I need to do. And then he backs it up with a statement that's found in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, 17. It says, their sins and lawless deeds, quoting Jesus now, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. He doesn't remember. We sang a song last night. I can't give you the title. It's a great song. There's a line in it talking about what God's done with our sins once we confess them, repent of them. He's thrown them into the depths of the sea. And that ocean, so the lyrics go, has no bottom. We know the ocean has a bottom. I don't think any human being has been to the bottom yet because the pressure is so great it would crush or kill people who would do that. But this particular lyric adds something to it that's not necessarily biblical strictly speaking but I think it fits with the Lord throwing my sins into the depth of the sea so the 
will remember them no more. It says it's an ocean that has no bottom and has no shore. I love that. Has no shore. There could be some kind of cataclysmic, seismic action in the deepest part of the sea. And all of a sudden things from the bottom of the sea, miles below, could bubble to the surface. The tide gets them and they get washed ashore, right? Every once in a while, I'll read about some kind of prehistoric fish that has come up from the depths that never been seen before. Well, that's not going to happen to your sin and my sin when we know Jesus and we are faithful to confess our sin to Him and say, Lord, I've blown it again. He says, I know it. But it doesn't disqualify you provided you recognize it and you yield yourself in a fresh way to me. It's not like being saved over and over and over again. We who know Jesus Christ, the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once we give our hearts to Christ, our sins have been paid. But what happens as we travel through this life, we do things in our own energy. We go our own way. I wonder... If like me, in the last week, I could pinpoint more than one event where I knew I was being tempted to sin, and I know what the Lord says about that kind of behavior, and it took various forms in my life, I knew that I would be in sin if I did it, and I went ahead and did some of those things. Anybody here besides me? We're not looking, I'm testifying to you today. I'm not wanting company in that, believe me. But what I do know is when the Lord speaks to our hearts, when He saved us to begin with, and really that's the wrong way to say it. It had no beginning in a way because He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and acceptable in His sight. But nevertheless, Jesus paid it all for us on the cross to cleanse us. And what He wants us to do is not sit and mope around when we fail Him. It's not an invitation that He gives to us, sin all you want. That is not His M.O. That's not what the Lord wants. But what He does do, He comes and He fixes us up so that we may not live a lifestyle of sin, but we live a different life. And let me be clear. Please hear me. Please. The Bible says that Christ, when we give our lives to Him, by His Spirit comes to live in us. The Apostle Paul put it this way, for to me to live is Christ. What was he saying? The same thing he said in Colossians when he speaks in the third chapter and he makes this little statement. You can miss it so easily in the fourth verse where he says, Christ who is your life. You and I have him living in us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And when he comes to live in us, what he does, he lives his life through us. Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And that could be translated, Christ is living in me. And He will continue to live in me for the rest of my existence. Christ 
is living in me. And Paul goes on to say, the life which I now live, now catch this, this is the answer to stifling this cycle of complete disregard for God in our decisions. I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's the way the King James translation does it. And I'm in full agreement with it based on my understanding of the language and the syntax of the New Testament. That He's in me. He lives in me. And consequently, I have the capacity to live off of Him. I am to abide in Christ. Isn't that what we've learned in our study of the book of John? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me like a limb in a vine... That person bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We live, and this is what Peter had to learn. This is what I am in the process of learning. And I will continue to learn it, I'm sure. But we need to know we can't be who God created us to be apart from Jesus Christ. Try as I might, try as you might, we foul up. As we foul up and we learn to depend on the Lord. Remember the Holy Spirit is how He lives in us. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? He says a lot of things. We don't have to, time to go into all of them. But this is something we need to know. The Bible says keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That means keep on being controlled by the Holy Spirit. That requires my yielding myself to Him. Not just once, but over and over and over again. And what happens is that I become more and more like Christ when I do that. I grow. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, several things about Jesus. Now think about this carefully. In the 29th through the 31st verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible talks about how Jesus is our wisdom. He's the wisdom of God to us. Do you lack wisdom? I certainly do. Where do I go to find it? To Jesus. Where do I hear Him speak? From His Word. God speaks to us. And so we are people who have His wisdom. That same verse goes on to say, He's not only our wisdom, He's our righteousness. So that we, when we are looked upon by none other than God the Father Himself, when we are accused by Satan for our sin, what we know is that God knows who we are, but He sees us in Christ, who is our righteousness. He is also our sanctification. What does that mean? That's a big theological word, Bible word. We don't use that very often. Simply means that He is the one who makes it possible to us to grow in Christ and to be used by Christ, to bring honor to Him, rather than to fail over and over and over and over again and bring dishonor to Him. And the last word that's used, and it's just a sampling of terms which could be used of Christ about us, the Bible says He is our redemption. Do you know what it means or meant in the Bible when it spoke of someone being redeemed? It was a word of the slave market. There were literally millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. They were so much chattel. They were 
personal property owned by other human beings. And it was possible under Roman law for someone who could come and had enough money to buy the person to be owned by him or her, then that person had the legal right to set the person free. That's what Christ did for us. He's our redemption. He's our sanctification. He's our righteousness. He's our wisdom. And a multitude of every other thing that is characteristic of God. Why? Because God lives in us. And He wants us to be filled with His Spirit. And that simply means that we yield our lives to Him and we trust Him for everything. How much can I do without Jesus Christ? Zero. Apart from Him, you and I can do nothing. But what does Paul say in Philippians 4.13? Through Him, I can do what? Anything. Through Him. That's the key little phrase. Apart from Him, nothing. Through Him, anything that He gives me to do. And be successful from our point of view. Let's look at this conversation that Peter and Jesus had, beginning with verse 15 of John 21. So when they had finished breakfast, remember, Jesus had prepared breakfast for Peter and his six fishing companions, and they were so glad undoubtedly to see Jesus. It was a third time that he had appeared to them as a group. He peer, appeared to Peter privately. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul catalogs the appearances of Jesus, when he gets to individuals, who tops the list? You might think he would say he appeared to me, to Paul, but he doesn't say I appeared to Peter. Peter, the one who disowned Jesus. The word deny, you remember when Jesus says, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, the first thing that that person must do is what? Deny himself. As if that person didn't exist. And he denied Jesus. It was as if he was saying, he doesn't even exist to me. Well, he knew better, but he found himself in a pinch and he caved in. He disappointed. He failed his Lord. The scripture says, that Jesus said, called him Simon, son of John. He didn't call him by Peter because he was acting out of his own human nature. He was depending on his flesh. He was acting like John, the son, uh, Simon rather, the son of John. Not like Peter, who had been recreated the way that Jesus saw him. Look at the middle of that. He said to him, yes, Lord. No, excuse me, I... I Skipped a very important part. Simon, the son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus was, I'm sure, referring to the other six apostles there. After all, they had been with Jesus and Peter in the upper room before Jesus was arrested when Jesus was telling them in front of Peter that Peter was going to deny and the other gospel writer, Matthew, about this, all, all the gospels talk about it. Matthew tells how he said, I'm talking about Peter now, when Christ said, you're going you're gonna to 
deny me. He said, all these guys might, but I won't. Don't ever argue with Jesus. He, he knows the present and the future. And we see that here. And he says, do you love me? This must have cut him to the quick. Can you imagine how that would have felt if you were Peter? Right in his heart, like a stab in his heart. And the word love is the uniquely New Testament word. It's a word which suggests the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving other people. Do you love me like that? More than these people too. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but here's what doesn't appear to our English reading eyes. Now, eyes, follow me carefully. There are two words that are used in the New Testament that are translated into English as our word love. The word that Jesus used, I've already defined it. It's a word which is an otherworldly word. It's the only kind of love that God knows toward us. And what we know is that when he answered, I'm talking about Peter, he used another word. It was a wonderful word. It was the word that described better than any other word the highest form of friendship between human beings. Even human beings that did not know Christ were not God believers at all. But it was a word that fell far short of the word that Jesus used when he asked. And Peter was not going to use that same word to say it back. He used the other word. It's phileo or philia in the noun form. You know the city of brotherly love? What is it? Philadelphia. That's made from two Greek words. Philia or phileo, friendship, love. And Delphia, Adelphia, that's a word for brotherly or sisterly love. So we come back here and we look at what he says. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Let's stop here just a moment. What are lambs? Anybody know here what a lamb is? Huh? I think somebody must be saying baby sheep. It's true. Now recall the first part of this chapter talks about we as believers in Christ and we as a church are to be fishers of men. We're to find people who are people that the Lord is prepared to hear the gospel and receive Christ. And we don't know about it. Most of us don't because we're too afraid. Afraid we're going to make a mistake. Afraid we're going to be ridiculed. Uh, we'll blow it. We won't say it right. And so we want to drive anybody away from the Lord. And I heard one by God tell it like this. It helped me a lot when I was kind of using that excuse. This is what he said. Where are you going to drive them away to? They're already hell, hell bound because they have not given their lives to Jesus. Share the gospel with them. So we see we're to fish for men, but also once they come to the Lord, what are we to do? They're our baby brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to help them to come to grow in Christ. Are you about that in your life? Helping people to hear the gospel. And then once someone does come to Christ, we have people almost every week 
in and around our church who come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they need people to help them. And people like you and I can do that. You don't have to know much. We had a little baby in our presence in the 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock service this morning. And his name is Isaiah Hatch. He's three weeks old. He's the second of two sons born to Shelly and Richie Hatch. And he's so cute. And he, he can't do anything much except things that cause us some trouble, right? But we love him. That's the way the Lord looks at newborns. He knows they're newborn. But he gives them spiritual parents to care for them, to disciple them. And lots of people never grow because they don't have someone to come alongside and take the risk of pouring into him or her how to feed himself, how to clothe himself. All those are metaphors that are used, among others, to describe what we need to learn in order to be people who don't live in a cesspool of failure, but people who grow and mature. What's perfectly acceptable in a three-year-old is not acceptable in a ten-year-old. Am I right? Uh, maybe that doesn't work anymore in our culture. I don't know. But right, when we want our kids to learn, don't we, and to grow, and if we give that kind of attention to our physical offspring, we need to give it to our spiritual offspring. This is our responsibility. S go fishing, and what else? make disciples. Help them to grow. And you can be used by the Lord. You might say, I don't know anything. Well, start reading your Bible. It's not that hard to read it and let the Lord teach you. You and I only have to be one step ahead of anybody, especially newborn babies in Christ. Ten lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He drops more than these, but still, that's hurting him to hear it. Let up, Jesus. Give him a break. We might be rooting on the sideline. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's, he's just hurting to hear that. Then he said, shepherd my sheep. I asked if we would read from the book of Ezekiel today, and I'm going to just give a very surface look at the situation which existed in Ezekiel's day regarding shepherds. There were shepherds there, pastors there, and priests and other people who were more mature and they had responsibility to care for the sheep of Christ. Remember when we read from Psalm 100? It is God who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and what? The sheep of His pasture. We are his sheep. Here's what I would suggest based on Ezekiel 34. For me and Jesus and all the leaders in the church. And don't limit it to people who are under shepherds. Who are pastors and elders. It's for all of us because we're part of the body of Christ. We are to strengthen the weak. Let me take my glasses off so I can read my reading. Writing rather. In Psalm 119, 28, the Bible says, My soul, this is the psalmist, weeps because of grief. 
strengthen my soul. This is the writer's plea to the Father. And you know, there are people here today who need someone to come alongside him or her and help strengthen the faith. What is the means whereby the Lord strengthens us? It's His Word. It's the Scripture. By the use of the Scripture in the hands of the Holy Spirit, as Holy Spirit uses us to minister to each other. In 2 Timothy 4.2, this is what Paul writes to his disciple in Christ, Timothy. He says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We'll come back to that a little later. Exhort with great patience. Does it take patience to be a good biological parent? I mean, that baby wakes you up every two hours, if you're lucky, the first week or two. And I remember when finally our first child slept six hours. My wife and I were lying in bed, and all of a sudden, we woke up at the same time. It was amazing. It was 6 a.m., and I looked at her, and I said, is he still alive? <laughs> because he had been in the habit of crying about 3 or 4 in the morning. We were sleep-deprived, but we were sure glad he, would, he was making some progress. But what we need to understand... We have to have patience with these because they're babies. I can't tell you how many times I've poured into people's lives and then all of a sudden they just, they disappear. I call them, don't hear from them. I, I, I want to help them. But then lots of those people came back later and they apologized. They said, Mike, I'm sorry I disregarded your effort to help me to grow. Would you try me one more time. And like Christ, we should be that way to those brothers and sisters. They need that kind of help. We are to strengthen the weak. We are to heal the wounded. This world is filled with wounded hearts, isn't it? It takes someone who has been wounded, listen carefully, someone who has failed like Peter, maybe not to the extent but we have failed the Lord. It takes a wounded person who has responded properly to the wounding. Now listen to this. Did you know, according to the Bible, in many places, Hosea 6.1, if you want to look it up, 6.1 and 2, Hosea 6.1 and 2, Psalm 119, verse 75, this is what we see in those passages. It's the Lord who disciplines us. Jesus Himself says this. In Revelation 3.19, He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. He's doing exactly what He's seen His Father do. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible talks about how God, like any good father on earth would do, disciplines His children. And when bad things come to you, don't go scurrying around looking for some kind of answer. Go to the Word of God. Look at Christ. Know that He's enough for us in our trouble. He is a specialist uh, taking our failures and transforming them into assets for His kingdom. Here's one thing that is true. The one 
thing that must be true of you and me as human beings. In our humanity, I'm talk, not talking about with a life committed to God and having a Holy Spirit to guide us. But listen, watch this. The only prerequisite that you and I have for becoming a tool in the hand of the Lord is our failure. We have to recognize we can't save ourselves. We can't be good enough to get into heaven. We can't be bad so bad that we won't qualify to be saved from our sins. Every man and woman needs to be saved based on only the work of Jesus Christ for us, dying on the cross and taking the punishment for our sin. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. You will never get into heaven if you insist upon doing it yourself. You have to yield yourself to Christ and say, I surrender, Lord. I surrender. Have you ever done that? Some of you have professed faith in Christ, but have you ever really surrendered your life and let Him take control of your life? That's what it means to have Him as our Lord. And when that happens... He uses wounded healers. We've been healed in the sense. And Jesus wants to use you. And the only person who can really help somebody who's in deep trouble is someone who knows the grace of God and knows that the Lord is going to use His Spirit, maybe through you, to help someone who is hurting. We're to rescue the wayward. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. There are a lot of people who were here two months ago, three years ago. Where have they gone? They just disappeared. They're still around somewhere. But because they didn't have the proper discipling, they went away. And we need to be aware of that. And we all saw... Just a couple of weeks ago from John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. What did He send Jesus to do? To seek and to save that which is lost. And He wants us to be such people. To join hands with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus. And follow Christ. And reach out to help people who are out there. And the last thing is to equip the warrior. Now that's not in Ezekiel 34. That's just, I'm throwing that in. Because it's really important. This is what you're here today for. You've come here to worship the Lord. My responsibility as an un under-shepherd of God is to be a pastor teacher. Now, a teacher, that's pretty obvious. And we're not to come and sort of think things up in our head. Do you know where a teacher of God's Word always goes first? To the Word of God itself. And ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to show him, me in this case, show me, Lord, what this means. What application does this have to the lives of the people that you've given me a responsibility to serve as their shepherd? A shepherd teaches, but a shepherd does more than that. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. It means to lead and to lead in a way that's constructive. And as you lead, you lead by example. 
Jesus is our exemplar. He gave us an example. And we are to be men and women who imitate Christ. And the result will be God will use us to help people in the pursuit of knowing Him. And we learn from the Word of God. Paul again to Timothy. He said, remember he saw, we've already seen, he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We often limit our concept of grace to that necessary element for salvation initially. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But grace is the power because we know whose we are. We know that we are His. He's never going to throw us away. He loves us. And not only that, He lives in us. And He wants to reproduce His love to other people through you and me as we yield to His leadership in our lives. The Bible says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That covers the whole gamut of your needs and mine. If you think about those words, look them up in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, so that the person of God, listen carefully, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have been given the Holy Spirit to indwell us. We have been given the Scripture. And when people come to know Christ, they have the Holy Spirit. They may not know it, but they do. And they have the Scripture. They may not understand it to the extent that you and I do, but they have to start somewhere. And we help them. And they grow. And they become equipped. We're not saved primarily for ourselves. Do you know that? The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that He saves us for His sake. What does God have at stake? Message. A message based on the grace of God, free forgiveness, usefulness to the Lord for the glory of God, to bring this kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the Lord wants from you and from me. If you have been wounded and you haven't dealt properly with it, if you know Christ, and there would be many people who would be in that category, You've been wounded. And you've been searching, why was I wounded? Take a careful look at what the Scripture says about the disciplinary action of God and how the things that we call affliction, and rightly so, those things have to be at least permitted by God because He's omnipotent. He is the God of all things in the universe. And then we back off and we say, Lord, I don't fully understand this, but I, I want to receive it. Help me, Lord, to receive it properly and learn from it. Then the Lord will use you to help other people. I want to finish with this story. And it's not a made-up story. It's reportedly true. It comes from the early Middle Ages. It's set in the desert, probably the Arabian desert as we would call it. A soldier came to a very wise man, a wise under-shepherd, 
of Christ and he asked him, would you please tell me if God will accept my repentance? And this is what the writer of the anecdote says. He, the man who was asked the question, if God would accept his repentance. He said, tell me, dear friend, if your cloak is torn, do you throw it away? The man who had been inquiring said, no, I mend it and use it again. Then the sage said to him, if you are so careful about your cloak, will not God be equally careful of his creatures? He didn't save you and me for us to sit on the sideline. He didn't save us so that we are living in a quandary of failure. He saved us so that we could take our lives to Him and surrender them fully to Him, like Peter eventually did. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our Lord, I ask now on behalf of all of us who are here that you would drive this message into our hearts, not let us forget about it. Help us to think about it. And Holy Spirit, we pray you would convict us and show us the only way to relief is our surrendering everything to you, not just 90%, but to the level that we understand all of ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.